Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. And now, here's this week's sermon. Good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, and I hope you do today, let's open them to Genesis chapter 32. Be in chapter 32 of Genesis. Uh, if you're visiting Christ Church, my name is Mark. I have the privilege of being one of the ministers here. We're glad you're with us. As Beth so uh, uh, explained a little bit earlier, our series on shadows is looking in the Old Testament and God's interactions with individuals and the promise that happens during those interactions and how it's more fully developed in Jesus. This is what we're looking at. The shadows of the Old Testament casting forward to the light that's found in Christ. And uh, so last week we looked at a 90-year-old woman who was, made, who was given a promise by God and she laughed. She laughed at the promise. And at first it was a, a, a laugh that wasn't complimentary. And at the end of the story, she laughed with full joy at what God is able to do. Today, we want to see a man who fights his whole life, wrestle, if you will, with God. And what he learns and what we learn about what happens when we wrestle with the truth of God and we wrestle with that in our own daily lives. We're going to begin in Genesis 32, verse 22. We're going to read through a part of verse 24. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, his 11 sons, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone. So I want to pause this story. It's a long story of a man named Jacob. Uh, His story begins in Genesis 28, and it continues through this particular text. And then all the way uh, he is seen throughout the rest of the book of Genesis, all the way through the 50th chapter. There's a few things I need to tell you about Jacob's life, so I'm going to give you a thumbnail sketch of his story if you don't know his story, because I want to bring you in. Jacob is a twin. He has a brother named Esau, and his entire life, because Esau was born first, Jacob has been striving and fighting against his brother to get what his brother has been promised. The Bible even records that while in their mother's womb, they were fighting, and the mother knew this is going to be difficult. Rebecca knew that her two boys were at odds with each other, even during the pregnancy. She sensed that. And when Esau came out first, the, Jacob was holding his ankle. So the two boys came out in this order, one trying to pull the other back in, the other escaping. And there was the scene that starts to develop for us an understanding of this relationship. As they grew, Isaac the father favorited his oldest son Esau. Esau was an outdoorsman. In fact, they don't give him a complimentary description in the Bible. He was a hairy man. And that, that will play in the story here, and it's a little bit later. So he's this little furball that comes out, and he's a man's man. He's out hunting, and then across the room is his little brother who's reading books and writing computer programs. I don't know, but it wasn't something that Isaac looked at and was really excited about. And so he loved Esau over. And I want you to remember this because the next few weeks as we walk through the stories of God interacting with individuals in the Old Testament that teach us about what Jesus would become, you have to understand the favoritism that Isaac showed Esau would affect Jacob and he would show favoritism to his own son of the 12 he had. And it's not a good thing. You see, what Jacob wanted was his older brother's blessing. And what is the blessing? Well, it's twofold. It was the inheritance, and secondly, it was the authority. That Jacob wanted to be in charge. Jacob wanted to have the power. He wanted to have the authority. And Esau got it simply by being born first. 
So Jacob is the kind of guy that doesn't take no for an answer and he works whatever angle he can. Always work in the system to get what he wants. In fact, his name means conniver, wrestler, someone who's always fighting to gain an advantage. One day when Isaac was very old and it was sure that he was soon to die, he was also blind. And Jacob dressed up like his brother. He put wool, which tells you how furry this dude was. He put wool on his arm. So when his dad touched it, he goes, that's my son. Ooh, weird. But anyway, what Jacob did was he blessed, uh, I, or Isaac blessed Jacob, who was acting like his, big, his older brother. And when Isaac gave him the blessing, it was irrevocable. When Isaac found out that he'd been tricked, he knew he couldn't rescind the blessing. So the blessing was given to the younger brother over the older brother. And Esau, when he found out, said, I'm going to kill my brother the moment my dad dies. And so Jacob fled. He, which is ironic, isn't it? Sad. The thing he worked his whole life, that he connived. He once took the birthright from his older brother by giving him stew. He, he found him in a hungry moment, took advantage of him, got him to give away something that was in the future for the right now. Esau was a compulsive man. So he got his birthright, and then he got the blessing, and everything he thought he wanted, everything he worked his whole life to finally have, he had to bolt town. He had to run away in fear, and he couldn't have any of the things he was given. He tried to make his own way, and it didn't work. And where we meet him in his story today is Jacob has cheated his brother. He lied to his father, and now he's in another land he has no blessing in. His, he meets the wife that he falls in love with. He wants to marry her. So he goes to her father and he says, I'd like to marry your daughter. And he says, well, you have to work for me for seven years to pay off the dowry. And then at that point in time, I will give you my daughter in marriage. Well, he works the seven years. And I don't know how this works. I'm going to be honest with you. It's one of the weirder parts of the Bible. He wakes up the morning after his wedding night and it wasn't the daughter he thought he was marrying. It was her older sister. That's strange. You can all admit that right now, right? You're like... <laughs> What an idiot. Anyway, so he wakes up and he's like, oh, I, never mind. And then he says, you knew the one I wanted to marry. He said, well, I couldn't marry my a younger daughter over my older daughter. This older, younger thing plays out through Jacob's story. So the father says, you work another seven years and I'll give you my younger daughter as your wife right now. And, and so Jacob has two sisters, his wives, and, and he has 11 children, 11 boys. And this is where we meet him in the story. With two wives and two servants that gave him children. He's got 11 sons, a bunch of daughters, and these four women in his world. And he says, I have to go back to the land of blessing. I have to make this right with Esau. Where we meet him in the story we read right now is this. He's put one wife and sons in one direction, another wife and sons in another direction. He crosses over the river. What he's concluded is, if Esau kills me for what I did to him, at least my family may survive. Ahead of that, he sent a bunch of bribes, a bunch of cattle and treasures, saying to his brother, I, I humble myself before you. I'm honoring you. You're the older. And this is where our story takes place. What I want you to understand is this. Jacob was going back to the, his land to wrestle with the man he'd wrestled with his whole life. But what he discovers is he wasn't wrestling against Esau. He was wrestling against somebody else. Let's look at three points this morning, and we'll make our tie-in to how this shadows Jesus. The first one is this. An encounter with God is personal. An encounter with God is personal. Verse 24. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. 
Verse 24 is significant. He was left alone. Most people that have experiences in their life that test their faith. And let me give you some scenarios to make the point of what I want to make this morning. The first one is this. Maybe you grew up in a Christian home. You went to church. You went to youth group. You went to Bible studies. Your parents engaged you in all of that. And it was important to you growing up. And you had grand visions of following Jesus the rest of your life. And you lived in this environment. And then what happened was you went to college or you went away to work or you went away to the military. And you got away from that environment. You got away from those people. And all of a sudden, the things that you thought were important are no longer important to you. You don't pray. You're not going to worship. You're not anti-God, you just become neutral. You're not against God, but you're certainly not living with him. You're just kind of floating in this American Christianity where I go to church. Why does that happen? Because God became unreal in your reality. God was more about a place and a youth group or a Bible study or friends than it was about him. Or maybe you didn't grow up in that environment and you went to college or you went to the military and you got into a small group and they pursued spiritual things and you drew close and you, you started developing your own faith and Jesus mattered to you and then you graduated and you got in the job market and you got married and you had kids and activities and events and your own personal interests. And it wasn't that you were anti-God, but you definitely weren't living with him. You just got neutral. You just kind of did what everybody else did and God was really unreal for your reality. Or maybe you had a challenging time in your life. I read this one time and I believed in all my heart it's true. The two things that bring people back to church is death or children. Because both scare us, don't they? We feel unprepared for both. So they say that a reason people will come back to church is someone they love died and the reality of death became so real they had to deal with it or they had children and they thought, oh my gosh, I'm still a child. I need help. And in the reality of that, what happens is people come back and they get into Bible study and they start praying and they start getting passionate. But then the challenge that drew them back to the environment changed and they no longer needed the environment. So they just go about their lives and attend church periodically, but not really. They're not part of the church. They just come to it. Why do these things happen to us? Because we fall in love with the environments. We like the high. We like the feeling. We like the engagement. We like the connections. But we don't really understand behind all of that is to encounter God, you're most likely going to do it alone. Some, uh, one author once said, religion can overshadow us, but it doesn't penetrate us. You do not need the right environment to draw close to God. You need to draw close to God despite the environment. You see, the big problem in most of our lives is we've never faced God alone. We've always used youth group or conferences or CIY move or church on Sunday if it's cool. And it just fed a part of us that made our tails wag and made us think, well, this is it. This is what I've been looking for. You've looked for the environment rather than the God of the environment. You see, the truth of the matter is, when someone close to us dies, your friends are going to gather and sincerely love on you, and they're going to offer to be there. But the biggest challenges in your life when someone in your life dies is how you face it alone. In the alone times, at night when your spouse is no longer there or there's an empty bedroom in your house that was once filled by somebody you loved passionately. It's in the, it's in the nighttime alone 
that we find out if our relationship with God is real. And notice that Jacob has the moment of his lifetime when he separated himself from all the environments that made him think who he was, and he actually put himself in a position to be available to God. The second thing I want to show you is an encounter with God is personal wrestling. This is the, this is the imagery used in Genesis specifically about what took place, but I think it works for us. So we'll call it wrestling, verses 25 through 32. When the man saw that he could not overpower him. Now, the man is the one Jacob is, is physically wrestling. When the man saw that he, could know, that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. And then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. And the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. Jacob said, please tell me your name. Now, I want you to pay attention to this. He's wrestled with this guy all night. And at the end, he realizes he's not going to win. So Jacob latches onto this guy and he says, tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? If you want to reinterpret this text, I think it's safe to interpret it this way. You know who I am. That's a significant moment in the story. Why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, It is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, and he was limping because of his hip. Have you ever wrestled with God? And that's not one of those big overarching questions that I'm going to tell you how to do it. I'm not going to tell you how to do it. I'm going to ask you a question. Have you ever wrestled with God? Because wrestling, by definition, is moves and counter moves. When, when I started in youth ministry, I had two boys that wrestled, so I spent hundreds of hours in gyms watching these two incredible athletes. Both of them went to wrestle in college. One was an All-American. They both won state two times. I got to see good wrestling. And here's what wrestling is. It's not just using your favorite move. It's countering the moves of the person you're wrestling with. And the ultimate goal is to counter the moves of the person you're wrestling in such a way that you get them to submit. You pin them to the ground, or they submit, or you defeat them with your moves to the spot that at the end of the three rounds, the official will say, you had more points than they do. Moves and counter moves. Now let me ask you the question, have you ever wrestled with God? And you're going to say that wrestling could be a good thing and a bad thing. You're right. Sometimes we wrestle with God because we don't like what God's doing. And sometimes we wrestle with God to try to figure out who he is. And that's the one I want to talk to you about today. Because for many of us especially, and I I want to say this so you understand, I'm not against America. I, I thank God I was born in this country. But there is a part of the culture of America that is the exact opposite of what we're called to be. We're called to be independent and strong and stand on our own and not let anybody help us. Where in the world did you get that? It's a myth. We are called to be reliant on God, submissive to God, and paying attention to God, not having God pay attention to us. And so in this context, I'm going to ask you, do you wrestle with God? What I mean by wrestling with God is, when God says, I am holy and righteous and you're to be holy, do we try to counter that? Do we fight against that? Or do we realize, no, that's who God is. People say all the time, I won't believe in the entire Bible. I, I won't allow myself to because my God can't be violent. My God can't be narrow. There, can, there cannot only be one way to heaven. 
that, that if, if this feels so good for me, then there's no way I believe in a God who tells me it's wrong. And you don't have a God, you're the God. Because if you and I understand this, when God reveals himself to us and he says, here's who I am, and we've been studying it on Wednesday nights. If you take the first chapters of Genesis, chapters 1 through 11, God will reveal who he is, who Jesus is, what is sin, what is judgment. We've gone through all of that so we understand the theology of it. When you look at those truths, you can say, well, then I won't have a God who's like that. At least be intellectually honest about it. But we fight against God when God says, this is the way it is to be because I am God. Most of us at that point walk away. I won't have a God who tells me I'm wrong. Because if we only worship God because we agree with him, we have misunderstood worship. Let me pose it more practically so you understand my point. Some of us have been taught to believe or developed a belief system that says, if I do everything right, then God won't let my business collapse. Some of us believe, if I live a good life, then God won't let me have a season of loneliness without a partner. Or we've thought, if I obey the rules, then God would never let my spouse die when we were young. But I'm here to tell you that that's not what God promises. God doesn't say, I'm going to create environments for you that are always so pleasing that you'll love me. God says, I'm going to go with you to every environment you're in. And your environment won't be what you want it to be. But I'll be there with you, and I will be your strength, and I will be your hope. And that's how we wrestle with God. We have to wrestle with God to understand him, to see the moves he's making in the world and get along with those moves. And then when God gets us to a point where he says it's this way and we say it's this way, we need to let him pin us. We need to submit. We need to understand the joy of that. So having established these two things, that each one of us has to wrestle with God to understand who he is. And that wrestling is going to be difficult. But we're going to see what God does and we're going to respond to what God does because we believe he is almighty God. Not just the God of our making, the God of our minds, the God of our desires. But when he reveals himself to us, then we respond. The third point I want to make today to show you how this story tells us about our Jesus is an encounter with God is always victory through loss. And this will be tough in our culture because we play to win. And I'm going to confess to you, playing a game not to win is just dumb. If I play Monopoly with my boys, of course I want to win because that's a waste of 19 hours if I don't. <laughs> so you'll say, man, I've seen the preacher coach. He's, he's competitive. Yeah, that's why we compete. But I want you to understand the gospel says you can win, but the only way you win in the gospel is by losing. And we Americans go, huh? Let me explain. I'm going to ask a series of questions. By answering them, I hope you'll see what I've seen and what I've been taught. Who is stronger in this story? In verse 25, it says, when the man saw that he could not overpower him. Verse 26, he told Jacob, let me go. Jacob knew who it was when he said, what's your name? Tell me your name. Because see, the guy he was wrestling said, the sun's coming up. I need to go. Now he's either A, a vampire, 
Or B, Jacob said, he's God. Because no one can see the face of God and what? And live. So when the guy goes, the sun's coming up, I'm done here. And then he reaches down, he touches Jacob's hip, and Jacob goes, ah! He says, and then Jacob latches on. Have you ever held your child in the pool when they don't like the water? Then you probably can relate to how Jacob grabbed on to this guy. And he held on for his dear life. And he said, let me go. And he touches his hip. You see, here's what I want you to understand. If Jacob was wrestling with Jesus or God in this moment, couldn't God have destroyed him? But what did God do? God wrestled with him all night because God used his merciful power, not his majestic power. If you want a correlation, think of a father wrestling with his eight or nine-year-old son on the living room carpet. Could at any moment that father pick up that child and end the match quickly? Could he, could he end it eternally? Yeah, absolutely. But what does he choose to do? He ends it mercifully. He restricts his power. He restrains his power so that they can wrestle and he can teach his son that at any time I want to, I can end this. What God did in that moment was who was stronger? God was. But how did God actually demonstrate his strength? By showing weakness. Who won? That's a great question, an American question, right in my mind. Well, at the end of the day, God got up and walked away and Jacob limped away for the rest of his life. Jacob's walking like this. And people say, hey, why do you walk like that? Oh, dude, one night, and then who would believe that story? That's a war story no one buys into, right? Oh, I wrestled with God, took him eight hours to get me. Yeah, probably not. So who won? The answer to the question is both of them did. God won because he was able to reacquaint himself to Jacob. And he got Jacob to realize that he'd been struggling his whole life against God, not his brother. And Jacob won because he lived. Church, don't miss the point. The fact that he wasn't a stain on the ground of a man who used to live is one of the most amazing victories he could ever experience. And then he cried out to this guy as he held on to him. He said, bless me. I want you to notice his entire life, Jacob had done everything he could to get the blessing, get the blessing, get the blessing, make it happen, lie to his dad, cheat his brother, get his mama in on it. He did everything he could to try to gain advantage. But finally, in the moment that God touched his hip and he limped the rest of his life, he realized, if God doesn't bless me, I'll never be blessed. Who won? Jacob did. Who won? God did. And what was the blessing? It wasn't land. It wasn't flocks. It wasn't money. It wasn't power. He knew the presence of God. And at the end of the day, his conclusion was, I won. I got to be in the presence of God and live to tell about it. So what's the lesson for Jacob to learn? It's the same lesson for you and I to learn. The purpose of Christianity is not, how do I get God to give me the things I think I need? The, pres- the purpose of Christianity is to be introduced to a God that is so different from us, but a God who's drawn close to us. A God who is so much holier than we, that we can't even understand him, but he's given us glimpses of himself so we could love him. A God whose ideas are so far above ours but a God who came in the form of a man to introduce himself to us so we would know who he was.
That's the purpose of Christianity. It's not to connive and grab and steal and lie and push to get what you want. It's to surrender to what God wants. But until we wrestle with the reality of God, we will never truly let him pin us and submit to him. I think I shared this, I don't know if it was a Wednesday night, I talk a lot, so sometimes I don't remember when I said it. But I remember we used to try to, three boys would try to wrestle my dad and he'd pop our toes. That was a submission move that no WWE guy has ever thought of. He would pin us down and start popping our toes till we cried, dad is the greatest man ever. But aren't we glad today, church, that God doesn't do that to us? He just simply says, I am going to display merciful power in your life. And if you'll submit to that, then instead of us fighting each other, we'll journey together. But I want you to also know that God doesn't ask us to do anything that he didn't do already. Let me take you to a man named Jesus who won by choosing weakness. Instead of coming in his majestic power, like the book of Revelation says he will return with, he came in humility in the form of a baby. He gave up the power of heaven to take on the meekness and the pain of the earth so that you and I... Because see, I want you to know something very significant. When we think about Jesus, you say, but how does this relate to Jacob? Because when God reached down and he touched his hip, he put his hip out, you can translate that Hebrew word hip to actually mean groin. Abraham, Jacob's grandfather, made a covenant with one of his servants to find Isaac a wife, his son. And here's how they signed the covenant. And I'm going to tell you right now, it's weird. Abraham put his hand on the inner thigh of his servant, and his servant put his hand on the inner thigh of Abraham. Are you weirded out? Most of you are saying, never make that motion again. (laughs) But you know what they were saying on my generations, on my lineage, on those that I will reproduce that will proclaim God's name, do you promise? When God reached down and he dislocated the hip, several scholars believe what he was saying was, I want you to know that the generations that come from you come from me, the Father. And those generations will change the world. He changed his name from Jacob to Israel, and the 12 Nations of Israel, the 12 tribes of Israel, all came from this one father. And the beauty of this was that he made a promise. And when Jesus came, Jesus was the fruit of that promise. You see, it's found in Isaiah 55, verses 4 through 5. We think that crippling his hip and that he limped the rest of his life, that was kind of a big price to pay. Listen to Isaiah 55, 4 through 5. Because I'm going to tell you one just like Jacob who came and he suffered more and he suffered it for all of us. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. They thought that the Son of God had been rejected by his own dad. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Jesus Christ didn't limp away. Jacob did. Jesus Christ was carried away, dead, into a cave, placed on a stone table most likely wrapped up his body would have been covered with ointments and herbs so that when his body decayed up to a year later they would go in and they would take the bones off of the place they laid him and they would bury the bones that was the plan 
So they prepared his body, and they went back to prepare it again. But when they went back, the man who didn't limp away, but the man who was carried away, he was no longer laying on that table. He was in the garden talking to Mary. He was appearing to the disciples. He appeared to over 500 in that period of time. He ascended to the Father before the eyes of eyewitnesses. He's reappeared to the Apostle Paul. He's coming again in the book of Revelation. He didn't limp away. They carried him away. So that you and I would have the promise made to Jacob. You'll have to wrestle with the reality of God. But when you discover his power, lay down. Let that pin you. Don't fight against God. Understand him, and it'll take some wrestling. And sometimes you'll have to do it alone. The environment is not what we're called to. How do we do when we're all alone, just God and us? That's the sign of a real relationship. That's the sign of our hope. Because Jesus Christ did what he did so that you and I may limp away. But church, isn't it better to limp the rest of our lives in faith than it is to run away in fear? So if we limp today, praise the Lord. Because wrestling with God will change us. Sometimes wrestling with God will hurt us. It will cause us to be sore and weak and have to change. But the only way you and I win is when we submit and surrender to the one who wrestled with sin and died on our behalf. Let's stand together. Thank you for listening to a Sunday morning sermon from Christ Church of Orinoco. For more information about these sermons or about Christ Church in general, visit us online at ccochurch.com. Dot com.